0: And welcome to the Naked Scientists Easter Special with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arnie.
1: Coming up, a breakthrough in how to unboil an egg. Is a chocolate teapot really useless? The genetically modified chickens that can't catch bird flu, and why the Easter bunny might be knocked off his perch by a toucan.
0: Plus, we've also got a host of egg experiments that you can do at home. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. <laughs>
1: To start off, one of our producer Georgia's favourite Easter traditions is to draw happy faces on her soft-boiled eggs before ruthlessly decapitating them and dipping toast in their
0: brains. Yum, yum. Now, the familiar change that takes place when we boil an egg, that runny white going rubbery and becoming white, it occurs because heat causes the proteins that make up the egg white to change their shape or do what we call denature. Now, University of California, Irvine scientist Greg Weiss has found a way to reverse this process, or as he puts it, unboil an egg. And this could be very useful for
2: mass-producing proteins that we need to study or for medical uses. We didn't originally set out to unboil eggs. Originally, I just wanted some way of untangling proteins that get mashed together and uh, folded up. So I was in the lab one day. And we had this new method of of yanking on the protein chains and, and, and forcing them into their correct shapes. And I realized that no one on on the planet would believe how cool this was until I could demonstrate this on a problem that everyone acknowledges as hard. And that suddenly I realized that egg that I had for breakfast would be perfect.
0: First of all, tell us what is a protein and why is this
2: important? Okay, proteins are the workhorses of your cells. They're the things that make you do the things you do, that raise your arms, that provide the muscles, that run around the body and do all kinds of things. And those proteins are absolutely fascinating little machines that scientists like myself want to study. So when we get, when we start looking at them in detail and and start examining their functions and how they work, oftentimes we have to produce them in big quantities because only small quantities are available inside the cells. So we produce a big batch of these things and start examining them in detail. But the problem is when you're making this big batch of stuff, it's kind of like making a big batch of chocolate chip cookies or something. It doesn't come out the way the small batch did. They come out messed up, tangled together, just like egg whites after you boil them. So when I do boil my egg... The runny stuff, the white, becomes white, doesn't it? So what's actually happened to make a cooked egg go white like that? The boiled egg proteins inside the egg white are slipping apart. And so instead of being like neatly folded up sheets, let's say just, you know, sheets that you would put on your bed, instead of being nicely folded, they get thrown around the room inside the eggshell. And uh, you get a big pile of them that are all tangled together. And that tangled mass appears white to us. But the bottom line is that the
0: proteins that were in the egg white when it was in the runny uncooked state are now in a very different shape and state once we have they boiled are the egg.
2: Exactly. The pun <laughs> didn't escape me there, Greg. Sorry. <laughs> so, so what has what has happened? So the proteins get tangled together and then that's what appears white to us. In that state though, of tangled up, those proteins are useless. And you know that because even if we fertilize the boiled egg, nothing would happen, right? So those, uh, when proteins are tangled up, they're not in their natural shapes and they can't do their natural functions. And um, we needed a way of getting them out of that tangled up shape so that we can look at them in greater detail uh, in laboratories like my own, which focuses, for example, on cancer research.
0: So how did you get the egg to unboil itself then?
2: Okay. We started with eggs that were purchased from the local grocery store brought them home, um, and then uh, separated out the yolks from the whites using, of course, Julia Child's classic methods, boiled the egg for a good 10 to 20 minutes, so a really long time. So these were hard-boiled eggs, like hard, hard hard-boiled eggs. And then we took the hard-boiled egg, dissolved it in a chemical called urea. So urea is this fascinating chemical that gets into the protein tangles and starts breaking apart the little tiny contacts they have with each other. At that point, the proteins are still totally useless. They're like a tangled mass of, of sheets that have been thrown on the ground. We then put them in this special device called a vortex fluid device. The proteins are subject to tremendously high shear stress as they're whirled in a uh, tiny mini centrifuge. And in this shear stress, the proteins are pulled and unpulled like rubber bands, and then spontaneously. They start folding up into their correct shapes. So when you put them into the laboratory
0: equivalent of a food mixer, a centrifuge, essentially, <laughs> uh, you, you're putting them under a sheer stress. or you're pulling on the proteins, and that makes them sort of untangle, unthread themselves from this bundle that you had before. And then they're given the opportunity to put themselves back to the shape they had before we boiled the eggs. That's correct. And how do you know that the proteins do go back to their oh, egg-unboiled good question. state?
2: Yes. Good question. So there are, are a very large number of proteins inside an egg white, but we examined the abilities of one protein that's a champion at chewing on any bacteria that happen to get past the eggshell. And normally after you boil eggs, this protein is totally messed up. But after our unboiling experiment, the protein returns to 80% or so of its normal activity. And to demonstrate that, we basically fed it these bacteria cells and then watched it chewing on their cell walls.
0: Goodness. So that suggests that it would actually work for a whole range of different proteins in the egg, but then also potentially other tangled up denatured proteins in other circumstances, in the laboratory, for example.
2: Yes, that's precisely what we want to do is to apply this now to proteins that are associated with cancer, proteins that we'd like to use as flags for cancer to develop better diagnostics, proteins that we want to study their structures and understand how mutations to these proteins drive cancer and drive tumor formation. And does it work on chocolate eggs? <laughs> You're the very first person to ask. I'm tempted to go back to the lab right now, but that's only because I just want to purchase a large amount of Cadbury eggs and claim that it's a lab expense. Sounds like a
0: very fun experiment. Greg Weiss, unboiling eggs, including possibly chocolate ones. And on the subject of experimenting, over to Kat.
1: I've come over to our experimenting table where I'm joined by Georgia Mills. Tell us about our first experiment. Well, this is a way to tell if
3: your egg has been cooked without having to smash it open and potentially get raw egg everywhere. So
1: what have we got here? We've got two eggs on the table. They both look exactly the same. Is one of them cooked and one of them not cooked? One of them has been hard-boiled for six minutes and the other one
3: is complete fresh from the chicken. How do we tell the difference between
1: the two? What
3: I'm going to do is I'm going to spin both eggs around on their sides on the table really quickly. I'm going to put my finger on to stop them and then take it off again straight away.
1: Wow, one of them has stopped dead, but one of them weirdly has started rotating again. So what's the difference between them? Well, the one that
3: kept moving, that's the raw egg. And what
1: happened there is that the
3: liquid inside kept its momentum even when I stopped the shell. And then when I let go again, the momentum caused friction on the inside of the egg and started it moving again.
1: That is pretty cool. I mean, if I ever have an egg-based dilemma in my fridge. But is there anything else that we could use this kind of knowledge for about momentum of fluids? Well,
3: it's interesting because this is exactly what causes you to feel dizzy when you spin around because the liquid in your ear keeps its momentum even after you stop. And it's really good to use this for when you're thinking about transporting liquid as well. If you have one big container... The liquid inside will keep its momentum and slosh up and down and cause things like lorries to flip up on their side. But if you have
1: small compartments throughout the lorry, this will not happen so much. So I don't have a handy oil tanker, but we do have some eggs and I think I will pick the hard-boiled one for my tea. Thanks very much,
0: Georgia. Kat Arnie and Georgia Mills. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Catani. And this week, chickens, eggs and chocolate abound in our Easter special. Now, chocolate eggs are traditionally distributed by the benevolent Easter bunny, but there's one big problem. Where would a rabbit find an egg? They certainly don't lay them, but why not? Greg Jackson took a trip to London Zoo to find the answer.
4: I have four beautiful rabbits, walnut and hazel, smudge and pushkin, and I've been wondering for a long time whether they might surprise me one year and lay a chocolate egg for Easter, because that's what the Easter bunny does, right? Well, maybe not, and at least it's not only my pet rabbits that aren't grateful enough to lay me an egg. Of course, there's a huge evolutionary diversity in the animal kingdom when it comes to reproduction. In team one, you have the live birthers, and in team two, the egg layers. And one of the top players in team two are the birds. But why do some animals lay eggs and others give birth? What's better? And who does what? To get the egg rolling, I played a game with ZSL zoologist John Bealby in the birdhouse of London Zoo. The game is Bertha, or Egg Layer. Winner gets a gold star. Ready, set, go. Flamingo. Egg. Giraffe.
5: That will be Livium. Panda. Livium. Penguin. Eggs.
4: And duck ball platypus.
5: That's a tricky one. It's It's a mammal, but it lays eggs.
4: So there's sort of a 50-50 split there between live young and eggs. Is that the same across the entire animal kingdom or is it less evenly distributed than that?
5: Across the whole animal kingdom it would be less evenly distributed than that. You'd have many, many more animals that lay eggs rather than giving birth to live young.
4: These two main varieties, what's the benefit? Why do some animals lay eggs and others give birth to live young?
5: The main reason is that there are lots and lots of different ways to make a living. So we're walking around London Zoo, you see tons of different ways that animals do things. Sizes, diets, and that includes how they breed, how they reproduce, um, and what their young do. We think of all of vertebrates, so all, all the things with backbones, so fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals. The default setting is laying eggs, and that's because the ancestor of all of those different types of animals laid eggs but at various points across that family tree giving birth to live young has evolved in in different ways so both are equally successful both allow animals to pass on their genes and that's what natural selection and evolution is all about really
4: if we all started as egg layers and i'm laughing at the image of myself laying an egg um why would we suddenly evolve and across so many different animal Mm. kingdoms as well how did that happen if you like
5: the reason why it might happen is that a population or individuals within a population would have a mutation to their genetics. What it meant is that instead of laying eggs, they'd maintain their eggs for a little bit longer in their oviduct and then they'd lay eggs that would hatch out more quickly and so on and so forth. And if they survived better, then their genes would be passed on to the next generation.
4: Is there any examples of it going the other way around? So from live birth back to laying eggs?
5: As far as I'm aware, it's not gone the other way as yet.
4: But what about the Easter bunny? Because he, or she, famously carries around chocolate eggs. John and I sauntered down to the rabbit enclosure to find out if this myth could possibly be true. Could my pet rabbits lay me an egg this Easter?
5: I don't think you're going to go home and find that your rabbits have laid eggs. Have rabbits ever laid eggs? Sorry, no, don't think so.
4: Would they ever evolve to lay eggs in the
5: future? I think it's really, really unlikely. And there are a couple of reasons for that. So one is that... If you think of how different laying an egg is compared to giving birth to live young, so if you know if you look at your egg that you might have for breakfast, you crack it up and you've got the yellow bit which is the yolk, and then there's the white bit which is the protein. And you know, the shell itself's really specialised piece of equipment, if you like, for, for looking after a chick. In a rabbit, what would happen is that the young rabbits in, inside the mother would feed through the placenta. You know, think of think of a placenta compared to an egg, it's really, really different. Now the first reason I think it's, it's really unlikely that you're going to go home and find that your rabbits have laid eggs is that you know, having, having evolved all of this really elaborate way of looking after the young via a placenta, it's really unlikely that the body is physiologically going to be able to change and go back to laying eggs. I don't know whether that's impossible or not, but if you think about it, if that happened over thousands or even millions of years, it wouldn't really be a rabbit anymore. It would be something else. But the other reason is that rabbits are really successful, so they don't really need to do that. Rabbits breed like rabbits. There are are millions of them. So there's not really the the pressure for them to to go back to laying eggs.
4: You've just smashed all my hopes and dreams of the Easter Bunny ever coming to visit.
5: I'm really sorry about that. I mean, you might still get some Easter eggs this weekend, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, probably not laid by a rabbit.
4: So did the Easter Bunny... Steal his eggs from the chickens then? Is that is that what happened?
5: It's possible, but that, as far as I know, that the, the eggs that the Easter Bunny delivers are made out of chocolate. And as far as I know, that chickens don't lay chocolate eggs. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure how that happened, biologically speaking. There aren't
4: any animals no. that lay chocolate eggs, well, I'm assuming.
5: it would clearly melt inside of the oviducts, wouldn't they? It? It's just not going to happen. I suppose maybe that's why they've got protective tin foil insulation or something.
0: John Bilby there, speaking with Greer Jackson, and now it's time to get experimental again. Over to you, Kat.
1: Well, I don't care who brings me the eggs, as long as they're made of chocolate, preferably dark, even better, with salt caramel in them. We're now back to our experimenting table with Georgia Mills for another experiment to try at home. What have you got for me now?
3: Well, Kat, you're a naked scientist, so I thought I'd make you a naked egg. If you want to do this at home, all you need is a normal egg and a cup of vinegar, and you need to put the egg in the vinegar for about 24 hours. Do you need to have it completely covered by the vinegar? Completely submerged, Yes. And I made one earlier, and I've got it in this small container here. So
1: if you'd like to open it up and look inside. OK. Ooh. OK, so, ooh. right, straight away, I've got the really pungent smell of vinegar in my nostrils. There's all this kind of weird foam, kind of scummy foam on the top, and I can see bubbles all over the egg, all over the eggshell. Right, I'm, I'm going in, I'm going to pick it up. uh, (laughs) vinegar everywhere ooh, right it's egg shaped it's a rather anemic egg colour but it doesn't feel like an egg this is all kind of squadgy and soft it feels almost like one of those kind of gummy toys that that you used to get what's going on here like I said this is a
3: naked egg so it's lost the hard part of its shell and this is because vinegar is an acid and the shell is made of calcium carbonate and when these two go together they make a reaction which creates carbon dioxide that's the bubbles you saw so the carbon dioxide explains the bubbles but what about that weird soft shell what's happened there Well, the shell is made of this calcium carbonate scaffolding with the egg membrane inside it. And what we've done is we've taken away that scaffolding because it's reacted with the vinegar to form calcium acetate, which is dissolved in the rest of the liquid, leaving behind this squishy, gooey membrane.
1: I guess if chickens are making these hard calcium carbonate eggs, they must need to have a lot of calcium. Do they eat chalk or something?
3: As far as I know, they don't eat chalk, but they do have to eat a lot of extra calcium. And in fact, when birds themselves are ovulating, they tend to borrow calcium from their bones. You can actually tell what gender a bird is, or even a dinosaur, because they are ancient birds, really, just from looking at their bones.
1: When I went to the Natural History Museum to meet Sophie the Stegosaurus a couple of weeks ago, yeah, the person who was working on her bone said, oh, we we can tell that she wasn't ovulating because she didn't have those characteristic signs. So fascinating stuff. But uh, meanwhile, I've got one hard-boiled egg for my tea. And you know what, Georgia? I don't think I'll have that one, thanks. (laughs)
3: That's one for me then.
0: Thanks, Kat. Thanks, Georgia. Now, where would Easter be without chickens? There are something like 30 billion of them on Earth, and with these sorts of numbers, bird flu is a really big concern. Not only can it wipe out a farmer's livelihood, but it can also spread to humans and cause a pandemic. Now, biologist Lawrence Tiley thinks he has the ideal Easter treat, a genetically modified hen that can't contract the flu bug. At the moment, they are a rather alarming green colour, but he's working on that.
6: Flu is a virus, which means it's a very tiny organism that's completely dependent on infecting a cell and replicating within the cell of a host. It's not like a bacterium which can sort of free live, it has to actually get into an animal in order to reproduce itself. Flu causes disease in a lot of different species horses, pigs, uh, chickens are the ones that most people know about. How much of a headache is flu for farmers of chickens? It can be a big headache. strains that uh, are what we call highly pathogenic influenza viruses, they will kill 99% of a farmer's birds in the space of a couple of days. So we're trying to make strains of chickens that are intrinsically resistant to influenza infection. They can't catch flu? That's the ultimate goal, yes. We've made progress towards that. We've got birds that, although they can still be infected, they don't pass the infection on to other birds. How? By putting a a new gene into the bird that produces something that throws a spanner in the mechanics of the virus, it gums up the ability of the virus to copy itself and transmit on from one cell to another. The virus has to copy itself in order to to reproduce and and be able to cause uh, an infection and spread from one cell or one animal to another. And the way it does that, it uses an influenza virus protein, an enzyme, that can copy and make new uh, versions of of its uh, genetic material that it can then package up into new particles and those are new viruses. So we've introduced something into the genome of the chicken that produces a small molecule that looks like a flu genome and when the virus infects those cells it gets diverted into copying this little decoy rather than copying its own genome. So
0: the virus infects the cell Because you've got your little thing that looks a bit like a virus component Mm -hmm. sitting in the genetic material of the cell, this also starts being copied and it sidetracks the cell into focusing on that rather than on making viable flu viruses in that cell. That's the theory behind it, yes. Have you actually done this yet? Have you got chickens that
6: are making this molecule Yes, we've, we've made chickens that have got a, a new gene inserted into them uh, and that produces this particular molecule. We've tested them and shown that it does interfere effectively with the transmission of the virus from one bird to another.
0: Will this work for all of the different strains of flu? Because one of the, the things about flu is it comes in many different flavours. You hear about H1N1 and H3N2 in humans. Birds have maybe 17 of these different combinations, don't they? So will your thing work against any type of flu that comes along?
6: I think that's the beauty of this particular approach that we're taking is that the, the little bit of genetic material that we're introducing that looks like this piece of flu is absolutely the same in all of those strains of flu. And it's a very, very important control element for the virus. Uh, so there's very limited opportunity for it to evolve
0: around it. What about safety? Because people are very worried, particularly in the wake of things like BSE, which was another example of things getting into the food chain that people would rather have not had in the food chain. Is there any risk to the people who may eat these chickens? No. The nature of the molecule that we've introduced into the chickens, uh, it's
6: it's not a protein, for example, so uh, there would be no chance of anybody developing an allergy to it. The type of molecule it is would not be recognised by our immune system. It would have absolutely no effect on somebody who ate it. And the chickens are producing this in every single cell of their body, and they're absolutely normal, uh, except that they're bright green, because we use a fluorescent marker to track which ones are genetically modified and which ones aren't. Clearly, when it comes to the human food chain, we wouldn't be trying to flog fluorescent green
0: chickens. Oh, I don't know. A glowing green chicken might make quite a good marketing gimmick. That was Lawrence Tiley from the University of Cambridge.
1: Now, how often have you heard the saying, you're as useless as a chocolate teapot? Well, probably quite often, maybe if you're as useless as I am. But is it true? We dispatched naked scientist Ben Valsler and Dave Ansell to find
7: out.
8: Why is it that a chocolate teapot would be so useless? Well, the reason
7: why chocolate is so nice to eat is that its point at which it melts is very similar to the temperature of your mouth, so it should
8: melt in your mouth. So if you're going to put boiling water into it, it should melt really quickly and just collapse. So I guess what we need to find out is how thick the walls of the chocolate teapot need to be in order to not melt through by the time the tea is brewed. How are we going to find this out? We could just make lots of chocolate teapots, but that would take ages and use a really ridiculous amount of chocolate.
7: So instead, what I've got is a whole series of tubes with different amounts of chocolate in
8: the bottom of each one. I'm going to pour boiling water over them and see how long they take to melt. So, the tubes aren't actually sealed at the bottom, there's just a plug of chocolate in there of different thicknesses. And in theory, at least one of these thicknesses of chocolate should stay solid long enough to brew a cup of tea. Well,
7: because I've got no idea how thick this has got to be, I've gone for a very wide range of different thicknesses of chocolate, from about 10 millimetres up to about 80 millimetres, so one of those ought to survive the brewing time.
8: And uh, it looks to me like
7: you've chosen to go for dark chocolate? Well milk chocolate's got a lot of milk fat in it and milk fat's got a lower melting temperature than cocoa fat so dark chocolate ought to melt at a higher temperature so it ought to be slightly better than milk chocolate for this purposes.
8: Okay so I guess the first thing we need to do in that case is boil a kettle and pour some water into each of these tubes. I'll go and get that kettle. So while Dave goes to get the kettle, I'm just going to have a look at these tubes of chocolate. And they are just plastic tubes open at both ends with a thick plug of chocolate. Now, I don't think these are going to last very long when we pour boiling water in. And here comes Dave now with a steaming hot kettle, so we can try it out. So Dave, are you going to put them in in any particular order? Well, I figured I'd
7: start on the thickest plug of chocolate first, because that should last the longest, so it's probably the fairest to start with that one. And I'll try and put about the same amount of water on top of each one, roughly, so it's a
8: fair test. So there isn't a different weight of water that could just push the plug of chocolate out? Yeah, that's the idea. So what else is in chocolate? I know you've already mentioned cocoa fats and milk fats, but surely there's more to it than that. Well, a good quality dark chocolate is
7: basically just cocoa fat, um, some cocoa solids, which are the things which aren't fat from a cocoa bean,
8: and lots of sugar. OK, well, there's just been a bit of activity with these tubes. The tube with the thinnest plug of chocolate in has just dropped some chocolate onto the floor and emptied itself. In fact, that's really not a very pleasant thing to watch, the way it's just oozing chocolate into a dollop on the floor. Dave, how long did that take? Well, that seems to have been about four minutes, which is not bad
7: for only a 10mm piece of chocolate. It's a lot better than you'd expect, really. And four minutes is actually about as
8: long as you need to brew a cup of tea. Indeed, so maybe chocolate is a better teapot material than we'd first thought. So now that we know that a thickness of chocolate which is only about 10 mil or so about a centimeter should be thick enough to make a teapot out of shall we make a teapot yeah, I think so. We'll probably make one with rather thicker walls than that because a teapot's quite a lot bigger than the
7: 40mm tubes we're using. So maybe we'll go for about a 20mm wall and see what happens.
8: Excellent. And I do like my tea quite strong, so it would be good to be able to brew it for that little bit longer. So Dave and I are now going to go into his kitchen and make ourselves a chocolate teapot. We'll come back to you later on in the show to let you know how good it was at brewing some tea.
1: Ben Valsler and Dave Ansell. A key symbol of the Easter holidays is resurrection. Christians may celebrate a famous resurrection on Easter Sunday, but according to the Bible, Jesus definitely wasn't brought back to life by dunking him in water. However, that's exactly how a new breed of preserved vaccines and drugs are resurrected after being held in suspended animation in a special sugary glass. It's a discovery that could revolutionise vaccine delivery across the world. I spoke to Cambridge-based scientist Bruce Rosa to find out how his technology works.
9: All vaccines and many drugs are stored in the refrigerator. Absolutely have to be stored in the refrigerator because outside of the refrigerator they're unstable. This is particularly true of vaccines and particularly a problem with vaccines because they have to be shipped all over the world to uh, remote places uh, without access to refrigeration. It's an enormous job for the WHO to put a line of refrigerators all the way from the factories in the West to remote towns in Africa, say. That's the problem. How do you stabilise vaccines and other
1: drugs so that this is not required? Where did you look to for your inspiration?
9: The inspiration uh, came out of the blue. I was asked to make a presentation at the Royal Society and um, one of my problems was that the reagents I was using were very unstable. And a colleague suggested to me that I read a paper about how to address unstable proteins with a simple natural process. So I read this up and I discovered these living organisms called anhydrobiotic organisms uh, that were able to dry out during a drought uh, and then come back to life again when water was added back to them, even after 100 years. These are things like the resurrection plant. And there are also some animals that do this. And of course, for example, baker's yeast, you can buy that as a dry powder in the supermarket, add water to it, and it comes back to life.
1: Very appropriate if anyone's been making hot cross buns this weekend, I suppose. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Tell me a little bit more about what's going on in these organisms to enable them to preserve themselves for so long.
9: When I started to study this issue, two things that were noted by previous people were one that... um, these organisms could dry out and come back to life. And the second is that they contained a lot of a very unusual sugar called trehalose. Being completely innocent, I thought, well, obviously trehalose causes this phenomenon. Whereas almost anybody else who knew anything about it said, this is much too complicated a process for it just to be due to a simple sugar. But uh, I did some experiments and found that this simple sugar would exactly replicate what was happening in these uh, organisms. And it turns out that the process uh, is is very beautiful and very simple. When you dry these organisms, all the sugar that they have inside their tissues doesn't crystallise as the animals dry out, the way normal sugar crystallises, but it becomes more and more viscous, like honey, uh, which sort of turns into a thick syrup. Uh, And then as you remove more and more water, uh, it gradually solidifies, into um, what's called a glass. And these glasses are made of sugar so that they dissolve very easily in water. The molecules that were floating about in these organisms while they were alive become trapped uh, in this viscous sugar solution and eventually in the glass so that they can't move about, they can't interact with each other, and therefore they can't deteriorate. So they're trapped in uh, suspended animation, if you like, in the sugar glass.
1: It's a wonderful image of all these little molecules just trapped forever, almost like Han Solo frozen in in time in his carbonite.
9: A better principle is probably some of the living insects that you see trapped in amber. This all happens at room temperature or above. You don't have to use any freezing at all. And of course, that's why it's so valuable for vaccines in the developing
1: world. If all you need to do this process is some molecules, some living things and some sugar, does it work for everything? Could you could you make it work for any vaccine you wanted?
9: Yes, we've done about um, I think it's about 20 vaccines and it works with all of them. We don't have much doubt that uh, it'll work with anything that's given to us.
1: We've heard so much in the media over the past year about the Ebola outbreak in Western Africa. Do you think that potentially Ebola vaccines could be preserved in this kind of way too?
9: From what I know about Ebola vaccines, they are the sort of vaccines that we've worked with before, with which the technique works perfectly.
1: It does sound absolutely fantastic. So, of course, the big question is, how soon, when can you start getting this kind of preservation technique out into the world?
9: We've got to the stage now where... We're in animal trials, so we're hopeful that if our uh, animal experiments go well, we should be able to get it approved in humans very quickly. So we're talking about uh, two to five years, hopefully closer to two.
1: That's Bruce Rosa, director of Stable Farmer. And now it's Chris's turn to get experimental. What you got, Chris?
0: Thank you, Cat. Now, I'm at the experimental table with Georgia Mills, and you have a way for me to win an Easter bet
3: I do indeed. I'm going to get this egg, which is quite a bit bigger than the rim of this milk bottle, inside without squishing it.
0: Wow, okay. And what I would bet you a tenner that you can't do it. Deal. (laughs) Go on then, how are we going to do it?
3: Right, so if you want to do this at home and win some money off your relatives all you need is one of the old-fashioned milk bottles with a sort of small glass rim at the top this won't work in a plastic bottle and you need a hard-boiled egg and some matches
0: And so, OK, we now have a hard-boiled peeled egg
3: Right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the egg down for a second and I'm going to light a match and then I'm going to drop it straight into this glass milk bottle then I'm going to put the egg on top and you'll see what happens.
0: Okay, right, so let's light the match. Right, ready? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic! Well, what I will say to you, Georgia, is the egg is inside the bottle. It's not very (laughs) egg-shaped anymore. I would say it's more like scrambled egg, but it is in there.
3: (laughs) I I didn't expect that, to be honest.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, so what what has happened? How did the egg miraculously get uh, drawn straight into the bottle? Because literally we put the egg on the top of the bottle and then there was almost like an explosion and it went straight in.
3: Well the key was in the matches and what the matches were doing in this milk bottle was heating up the air inside and when air gets hot it expands so what happened there was that this hot air expanding was being pushed out of the bottle there wasn't enough room for it there anymore so the pressure inside was temporarily higher now when we put the egg on top and then the matches went out the air started to cool down again which means it contracted as there's now less air in the bottle than there was before, this means that there's really low pressure inside the bottle, where the pressure in the outside of the bottle is the same as normal, so it's much higher, pushing the egg right into the bottle and then creating this lovely omelette.
0: And where is this sort of relevant? Because yes, I can understand the principle and it's a useful bit of physics, but is this relevant to everyday life?
3: Outside of winning bets, it's really interesting to think about the amount of air pushing down on us all the time. Each square metre has about the equivalent of a double-decker bus of air pushing down on it all the time. The atmosphere is extremely heavy.
0: Well, I'll Grant you this, Georgia, uh, I think I think did sort of lose the bet, but some of the egg did break apart when it exploded on its way in and has landed on the table, so shall we call it a fiver? Sounds fair to me. Georgia Mills, thank you very much. Cat.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with him, Chris Smith, and with me, Kat Arnie. Still to come, is a chocolate teapot really useless and some tasty chocolate science?
0: Easter. Just wouldn't be Easter without consuming obscene amounts of chocolate. But for most of us, it's something we enjoy with a little bit of a guilty conscience, worrying about what it might do to our health and especially our waistlines. But wouldn't it be nice if this wasn't the case? It's not just a dream, because Ginny Smith went to visit Lycatech's chocolate lab in Cambridge, where the founder of the company, Ivan Pecheyev, explained how they're developing a range of chocolates that are actually beneficial for your health.
10: Majority of people, one way or another, eat chocolate. It's a treat most of people love basically and we want to not to change people introduce something they don't know it's something different or a few people eat it whatever the reason people do go for chocolate.
11: now i've heard a lot about kind of health claims around chocolate particularly dark chocolate that it's really good for you in all these different Mm. ways what is it in chocolate that gives Mm. us those benefits
10: we identify a number of active molecules, which are really responsible for certain health benefits. And it ranges from neurotransmitters, which are present in the a, in, in a chocolate, to caffeine. And in the last 20 years, main attention really focusing on new molecules they found, which have been there all the time, called polyphenols, in you know, flavanols. And they're cousins of the same molecule, which is in red wine, and the same which is in a blueberry.
11: What is it about polyphenols that are good for us? What do they actually do in the body?
10: Polyphenols, it's a type of molecules which is sitting on the surface of the cell membranes because it's a little bit lipophilic and also it's a bit water-soluble.
11: So the molecule is both attracted to the fats around the outside of the cell, but it's also soluble in blood.
10: You're absolutely right description because it's sitting on the surface of the membrane exposed to the blood, to the plasma. This is a unique position because actually this is where all drama in the cells happening, where the disease coming. You know, they call oxidation start from outside, inflammation start from outside. It means you need to help cells to control this process.
11: So is it effectively protecting the cell from attackers in the blood?
10: Exactly, because when the cells get attacked by... Damaging factors. It would protect them, and this has been described in many studies. And we really like these properties.
11: So, if chocolate is full of all this good stuff anyway, Mm -hmm. what makes your chocolate better?
10: We're not really bringing new chocolate. We're not bringing new molecules. We we have a technology which allows to deliver these molecules in very compact form and make them working. Our technology is designed to protect these flavanols in a chocolate because actually it's only 1% of flavanols get absorbed to the blood. If we learn how to protect flavanols from the damage during the digestion process, we can increase delivery of these flavanols and we don't need so much chocolate to consume.
11: Does that mean you're saying that there is a huge amount of the flavanols already in the chocolate, but we just can't access them because by the time they've got to our stomach, most of it's degenerated and it's not useful anymore?
10: This is exactly what is happening. 99% get oxidized by acidity and bacteria. It means we have very little to, left to absorb.
11: What exactly is it about the technology you've developed that prevents that oxidation process and keeps those flavanols available for us, for our bodies to use?
10: We know that flavanols are sitting within the chocolate crystals. And we developed technology that we can coat these crystals, or some of these crystals, with other active carotenoids, uh, pigments like uh, lycopene from tomato, lutein from uh, spinach, or we're using astrodenthin as well from algae. Basically, they are very similar to each other, but main property of them, they're not just able to coat the chocolate crystals, but they have acid resistance. It means this is what gives us, use them as a protector of flavanols during digestion process. As a result of this coating, we can have a higher level of delivery of these flavanols to the blood.
11: And of course, those carotenoid molecules you mentioned are very beneficial as well. We've all been told to eat more greens and eat more tomatoes because they've got these pigments in them that are so good for us.
10: This is correct. And if you combine the benefit of of these carotenoids together with higher increased level of flavanols, we have a very nice energetic, health beneficial effect.
11: And we really can eat chocolate without feeling guilty about it.
10: Yes, you can eat it and enjoy it. You can try yourself the taste and we'll see how it tastes.
11: Oh, that would be fantastic! So, have you got some here that I could try?
10: Oh yes, please do.
11: Okay, so which version of your chocolate is this?
10: It's contain astaxanthin. It's from algae. Make basically food chain all pink. Prawns eat them. You know, fish eat prawns on the crabs, and all of them, all these marine species, will have astaxanthin.
11: So it looks just like a normal square of dark chocolate. It's lovely and shiny and. Mm, it's got a very pungent dark chocolatey smell. I'm gonna try a piece now. And you promise me this won't taste of algae.
10: Mm, no. Mmm.
11: Not detecting any algae at the moment. It's a lovely smooth dark chocolate. It's delicious. You wouldn't know that this was a health food, certainly.
10: But this is a point. This is we don't want to change taste.
0: Jenny Smith and Ivan Pecheyev at Lycatech. So, what do you think? Kat? you up for some of that?
1: I'm always up for chocolate, whether it's healthy or not. I have to say, but now I have a riddle for you, Chris. What is thirty feet high, has a big red hat, and only has eyes for the beach? It sounds a bit like a Punch and Judy tent or something like that. Well, apparently, it's an Easter Island statue. To its inhabitants, it's Rapa Nui or Te Petuti Hanua, meaning the navel of the world. But here in Europe, we know it as Easter Island. It's one of the most isolated inhabited places in the world a tiny dot in the pacific ocean thousands of miles from the Chilean coast is home to these famous mysterious statues that stand on the beach they were built around 800 years ago and these distinctive giant stone figures stand watch over the island's inhabitants and are still an important part of their ceremonial life today But what do they mean and how on earth did the early islanders manage to make and move them? To find out, I went to meet Sue Hamilton, director of the UCL Institute of Archaeology.
12: It's about five and a half hours across the Pacific and all you see is blue sea, blue sea, blue sea and then you find a little triangular dot that's about 16 kilometres by 23 and that is Rapa Nui. And as you come down on it, you might actually think it was Scotland. It has no trees, lots of water but when you get out, it's very hot, it's subtropical.
1: You called it Rapa Nui but obviously we sometimes know it as Easter Island. Where did that name come from?
12: It was discovered on Easter Day, or discovered to Europeans, on Easter Day 1722 by a Dutchman called Jacob Ruving. So he went right across the Pacific to Chile and on his route back he found Easter Island. Where did these incredible statues come from? What do they look like and who made them? Well, first of all, it is in Polynesia. So it's um, a tradition of Polynesia to make effigies or statues which are put on ceremonial platforms. They're often considered to represent ancestors, but Easter Island is so remote that it developed a, a way of doing things of its own And it became quite extreme. So the statues on Easter Island are far, far bigger than anything else in Polynesia. Some up to 40 feet high. And what are they about? Um, Nobody really knows for sure. But some of them are placed on ceremonial platforms which have burials around them. And they're considered to represent the ancestors. The statues are also placed on these platforms near the sea. They face inland, so they're also overseeing the landscape and the living. But some of them are never actually removed from where they were carved, and they're carved out of a volcano known as Rana Maybe 250 leave Rana Raraku, and many, many more stay there, attached to the rock, set up around the rock, very much part of creating decoration of that place. So we suggest that where the quarry is is equally meaningful as the places that statues were taken to. You've mentioned
1: that these statues can be about 40 feet high. You've shown me a picture where someone's standing next
12: to one that's on on its side on the ground and they are massive i think that's really important the head of a statue is bigger than me i'm not that big but i you know i'm five foot two for anyone who wants to know um the hats. some of them have red hats on them the hats are bigger than me so they very much oversee the island and when they were standing they would have been a quite dramatic presence These statues have been
1: built in a remote island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They're made of stone.
12: They're absolutely enormous. How on earth did they build them and move them? So they're carved in the quarry, and that's quite accessible because you move along it as you carve it out. And what's more dramatic is how you detach them from the rock, Some of them were detached, others are not detached. But volcano craters are very, very steep. So as they're detached, they're very vulnerable. They're kept on keels, so they're just detached by a little bit of stone until they're ready. And then they would have been slid down the volcano, possibly on on big wooden rollers from tree trunks. What happens to them on their journey from the quarry to be set up by the sea? In the quarry the statues have no eyes. The position where the eyes would have been is marked out. Those that leave the quarry, and we have found en route between the quarry and the sea, they have no eyes. But when they get to the sea and they're set up on platforms... Big eye sockets are carved in their faces and coral eyes are set in which have red or black pupils based on different rock materials they use. So there's something to do with the animation of the rock, some ideas about what when the statues are active. They're kind of waking up when they get yes. to the sea. And of course they're overlooking the island so those aggregate cultural activities and other activities on the island... You have the statues looking at them. We think of these statues
1: maybe as something historic from the past, you know, that were made hundreds of years ago. Do they have any role on the island today?
12: They're completely central to the island. They're part of the belief systems of the island. So I think that's very important because in Europe we often look around monuments as if they're something separate, whereas these are very much understood as part of the world of the present and I'd also say they're very important because they create tourism there's not much that Easter Island can do to earn a living bare subsistence but tourism is very important on the island and of course that is also important in terms of managing it it's a tiny island how do you manage a lot of tourists and how can you train those tourists to see that these things are meaningful in the present and should not be abused but should be treated with care that's sue hamilton from ucl
1: and now here's chris with our last experiment of the day
0: okay thanks cats well people say about walking on eggshells i am quite literally about to do this georgia i'm very nervous actually you've made me take my shoe off
3: i have indeed we're going to test the strength of eggs today and see if they together can support your weight. So I've got a standard six-eggs carton on the floor with six eggs in it. I haven't done anything to them. I've checked that there aren't any cracks in them, and that's all. And you're going to stand on them now.
0: This is this sort of cardboard carton that you get from the supermarket, and there are six rather nice-looking eggs in there, and you want me to just stand with one foot, just stand on that.
3: Yes, it'll be a shame if this goes wrong, but I have faith in the structural integrity of these eggs.
0: Right, so I have taken my shoe off, I'm putting my socked foot on top of the eggs in the egg box. Um, And now I want you to
3: make sure your weight is evenly distributed across all of the six eggs.
0: Okay, I'm going to put my arm on you just so I can um, just stay stable. Okay, you wouldn't believe it, and I'm very nervous doing this, but I am standing on one leg, on one foot, on a box full of eggs. I am genuinely doing that, and they haven't broken.
3: I'm just as surprised as you,
0: I think. And I am very relieved. I'm amazed, actually. I thought, honestly, I thought that my feet were going to go straight through them, and I was going to have a very eggy sock.
3: That's the amazing property of an egg. If we did this on their side... This wouldn't work at all. Do you want to try that, Chris?
0: I'm not doing that, but let's just grab an egg. So th- these really are genuine eggs. They're not hard-boiled or anything. I can I can shake it. I can feel the, the sort of yolk and stuff sloshing around inside. So what's special about this that I can stand on it in that way?
3: Eggs have a really good shape for this kind of compression. If you look at them, they're, they're ovals. They're like an art shape. And we use this kind of shape in architecture all the time. You think about bridges. You think about domed ceilings. If you push on the top, of an egg because it's such a narrow arch the force is distributed all throughout the body of the egg meaning it won't break. However if you put a smaller force on the long edge of the egg this actually squeezes in the inside of the egg as well and the eggs are really bad withstanding this kind of pressure.
0: What you're saying is this egg is because of its shape when I apply a force to the, the curved top of the egg basically I'm compressing all of the material in the egg in all directions and it's sort of transferring the force down all of the sides evenly. Whereas if I turn the egg on its side and I were to stand on that, and I'm not going to do it, much to your disappointment, I won't be doing that. But if I were to stand on the side of the egg, then I would be bending the shell a bit and there wouldn't be that transfer of load all over the egg. It would just basically bend the shell and and it's not very strong when you make it stretch and it's going to bust open.
3: Exactly, which is why when you crack an egg, you do it on the side, you'd never do it on the top.
0: Did eggs evolve to have this shape for that reason? Is that why the egg has got this property, to to stop the chicken literally cracking its own eggs?
3: That's right. So when a mother hen sits on her eggs, the last thing she wants to do is to squish all her babies. So with these eggs pointing upright, it distributes her weight all around. But then when these tiny, weak chickens need to get out, a small force on the side of the egg enables them to crack out of the
0: egg. Well, look, from uh, from me here with a very uneggy sock, I'm very lucky to have escaped. And I'm very impressed, actually. I will be demonstrating that probably to the lot uh, of my kids again, Georgia. Thank you very much. Georgia Mills, cat.
1: Wow, I cannot believe that worked. Uh, nice one. I think it's time to rejoin Ben Valsler and Dave Ansell for a celebratory brew.
8: Welcome back to the Naked Scientist's Chocolate Teapot Tea Party. Now, Dave, you've made yourself quite an impressive looking chocolate teapot here. Can you run through again how it was made? Well I
7: first got a stupid quantity of chocolate about 1.3 kilograms of it. I then got a bowl filled it to sort of the half full of chocolate and I put a smaller bowl inside to make the gap to put the tea in and then I made a tube of chocolate by getting a tube of greaseproof paper sort of plastering it with chocolate and putting more greaseproof paper around the outside putting that out in the fridge and setting it. So that's formed our
8: spout and how
7: have you actually attached the two together? I basically just got molten chocolate and used it as a kind of glue and it welds two together really nicely.
8: Excellent one. Who'd have thought the chocolate would make a good welding material? And I can see also that you have a handle, although knowing that there's over a kilo of chocolate there, I'm not sure I'd trust it. No, I think the handle is there mostly for aesthetic purposes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose it's not a teapot if it doesn't have a handle and a spout. So I guess the next thing to do is just find out if we can brew some tea. Indeed, I've got a couple of Earl Grey tea bags here. Could Lovely. Open the lid, put the tea bags in. There's plenty of space in there. We should get at least two cups of tea out of this. Well, water's just gone off the boil, so let's pour it in and see what we can do. Well, it certainly hasn't melted through yet. I can see that you've even made a chocolate lid. Now, that looks very thin compared to the rest of the teapot, Dave. How confident are you that this lid is going to hold up? The
7: lid is probably the lowest level of confidence I have, I'm afraid.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Well, with all that steam condensing on the underside of it, we shall have to see. So now I guess we just sit back for a few minutes and uh, let the tea brew for maybe three or four minutes. Well, it's already been two minutes since we poured the water in, but unfortunately we've had a bit of an incident with the lid. Uh, Dave, what's happening? Well, hot air and steam
7: rise, the heat's coming up, then you've got hot steam condensing on the bottom of this chocolate lid, which is causing it to melt. So the lid was very, very thin. I, it was rather an afterthought. If you want to
8: make a chocolate teapot at home, make the lid more than five or six millimetres thick. <laughs> okay, so the lid has melted through a bit, but the main bowl seems to still be very intact. How does it feel on the outside? Does it feel warm? still feels cold on the outside, so it seems to be working quite well as an
7: insulator. Obviously, the chocolate on the inside is insulating the chocolate on the outside, so it's not melting. And now for the moment of truth, we'll try and pour the tea out of the teapot.
8: I am really, really impressed. The spout held firm. It does really look like tea as well. I expected it just to look like a chocolatey, murky mess. And inside the bowl, it's all clearly melted, but it's still pretty much bowl-shaped. It hasn't just become a puddle of chocolate. I think what's going on is that although chocolate melts quite
7: easily... When it's molten, it's still got some structural integrity. It doesn't actually slump too quickly of its own accord unless you actually push it or it's trying to support its own weight like the lid was. And chocolate's made out of fat, and fat's actually quite a good insulator. So the molten chocolate was insulating
8: the unmolten chocolate outside, so the outside still stayed solid, and it didn't melt. So it's actually a layer of melted chocolate insulating the rest, and this is why it didn't melt all the way through. It's actually done a very good job. Yeah, chocolate is obviously better than you'd expect for making teapots out of. I guess we'd better try the tea and see if it's any good. So, uh, cheers, Dave. Cheers, Ben. That's actually not too bad, you know. It, it does taste a lot sweeter than I'd usually have my tea, but it's still hot, it's perfectly palatable, and I think we've proved, actually, that you can make a teapot out of chocolate.
0: Dave Ansell and Ben Valsler. So use the phrase, as useless as a chocolate teapot, with extreme caution in future. That's it for this time. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills for production. We're back next week with a look at the science of immortality. We're asking, can humans live forever? If you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, the email address is chris at scientist.com. The Naked Scientist is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce and comes to you from Cambridge University. For now, from Kat and from me, a very happy Easter and goodbye.